You're listening to the Theology Mom podcast. And now, here's Theology Mom, Krista Bontrager. Happy Wednesday, everyone. Good evening. And I want to welcome you to this live stream. I am Krista Bontrager, also known as Theology Mom. And I am so glad to have you joining me for tonight's teaching and conversation. I want to say a special welcome to all of the new subscribers finding me here. Uh, Thank you for joining the conversation. And I want to encourage you to please share this content with a friend that you think it might help and might encourage them. And and I do hope that the teaching blesses you tonight. We're going to talk tonight about the question. We're going to start a two-part conversation on the question, is racism a gospel issue? And, you know, there are a lot of things right now floating around on the internet being called a gospel issue. For example, this is just a really quick search string that I did on the Gospel Coalition website last week when I was doing my prep is on the the search string of gospel issue. And we can just scroll down here a bit and see all of these different gospel issues, lots of Articles. This one, in fact, said eight things about the coronavirus should teach us. And ironically, it's all the way from 2014, but calling coronavirus a gospel issue. Racial reconciliation, a gospel issue. So we could just see all of these claims. And this is just on one website. But if you go on social media, this terminology is is all over the place. And I wanted to talk about this question because... Given the current conversations that our our culture is having right now about race issues, I thought it would be good for us to consider this claim that racism is a gospel issue. And what does it even mean to call something a gospel issue? To me, in my opinion, it, it is a term that is often used and seldom defined. So I'm going to take a stab tonight at trying to actually offer a biblical definition of of the issue tonight and at least get the conversation started. Because in my experience as a teacher, I've been teaching the Bible for 25 years, and it, it just, I've noticed that it's profoundly unhelpful to keep on using a term when we don't take the time to define it, or we just assume that everybody in the room shares the same definition. So when we're going to talk about this question, whether racism is a gospel issue, I think the best place to begin the conversation is to ask the question, what exactly is the gospel? Because before I can decide whether or not something is a gospel issue or not, I first have to know what the gospel is. So we're going to spend a considerable part of our time tonight talking about that question. And it may seem like a very basic question, But I'm actually noticing that there is a lot of confusion happening among Christians and and things that we're hearing many of our leading voices in conservative Christianity saying uh, what the gospel is. So we're going to go right back to basics tonight and try to all get on the same page in defining the gospel, because that is really a critical question we have to have under our belt before we can decide if anything is a gospel issue, much less racism. So the word gospel comes from the Greek. It's euangelion, and it means good news. It is the good news. That's what it literally means. 
And so if we're going to talk about the gospel message, this good news, what is that? What is that euangelion that caused these 12 men and really the 120 in the upper room on on Pentecost? What is it that caused the 120 men and women to turn the world upside down so quickly? And the usual definition that we hear for the gospel is people just jump right to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. And we will get there tonight. We will look at 1 Corinthians chapter 15 because it is a critical passage. But what I want us to understand tonight is that the proclamation of the gospel actually begins in the gospels. It it begins with Jesus. Even before the establishment of the church, even before the, the mysteries that Jesus reveals more fully of of the inclusion of the Gentiles and the Lord's Supper and baptism, even before all of those things, like something happens. And so we're going to actually walk through the Gospels and the book of Acts and watch how the gospel, this euangelion, the good news actually unfolds, because I want to equip you tonight to be able to evaluate whether anything is a gospel issue. I want to help all of you get really straight on what the gospel is, because so often in our culture right now, we've kind of boiled the gospel down to like either our testimony or the sinner's prayer. And, And these can be aspects or expressions of the gospel, but is not necessarily the gospel itself. So we're going to start with Luke chapter four. It's, it's the very beginning of Jesus's ministry. And he's, he's coming back from the fast and temptation period of 40 days in the wilderness. And he returns to his hometown of Nazareth. And, and the text says that he was empowered by the, the power of the Holy Spirit. And news was already starting to spread about him. So he was teaching in, in, the synagogues. And so he goes to Nazareth. He goes on the Sabbath day into the synagogue of his hometown. And I can imagine it that when he was growing up, he went to the synagogue thousands of times. It's sort of like for me, uh, returning to my home church, where now the elder statesmen of the church, they used to be my Sunday school teachers when I was growing up. And and now I'm there maybe teaching in the church. It's a, It's a bit of a an odd feeling. And so Jesus goes to Nazareth and he stands up on the Sabbath day and he reads from Isaiah 61. And it says that Luke quotes just a few verses here. It says, the spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind to set the oppressed free and proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And then he rolls up the, the scroll and he gives it back to the attendant. And then he says this, this very important statement in verse 21. Today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. Well, then his neighbors and the people that he grew up with are like, you know, is this guy out of his mind? What's going on here? Isn't this Joseph's son? Isn't this the carpenter's son? He anticipates their objections and he, he knows that they're, they're hearing rumors about things that he did in nearby cities and in Capernaum. And he, 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 but he knows that their rejection is, is coming, that they're not going to accept him as Messiah. And, and the people in the synagogue, they were furious when they heard this. And 
And they got up and they drove him out of town and uh, they wanted to throw him off the cliff. But he, he's, I think, supernaturally, he walked through the crowd and went on his way. Now, what's, what's interesting to me about this passage, there's a couple of things, is uh, the, the ancient Jews, just like Jews today, they, were, they were, had a liturgical form of worship. I think the chances are that Jesus probably read more from Isaiah 61 than just this passage. But even, even if he didn't, the people's thoughts about Isaiah 61, about the whole context of it, would have been brought to them. So even if they didn't read the whole thing right there, they, they would have drawn their attention to the whole uh, chapter of Isaiah 61 and, and reflecting on, wow, this is, is he saying that he's the anointed one? Is, is that what he's saying? And now you might hear your friends and your family members who are social justice advocates, and they will go to this passage oftentimes and say, see, Jesus's gospel is about helping the poor. That's why the people were so upset. They, they didn't want to lose their privilege. And they were concerned that Jesus was going to overturn their system. Now, as, as a lot of things in, in the social justice kind of angle on Christianity, uh, there's some truth here. But that truth is kind of also mixed with some what we call in theology eisegesis, which is just a big $5 word for reading things into the text that aren't actually there. Yes, Jesus's message of good news is for everyone. And that's part of what makes it good news. It is not just for certain people or a certain class of people. The invitation to believe in Jesus as the Messiah is going out and that good news is for everyone. It doesn't matter if you're rich or you're poor. It is for you because we're all sinners. And that is our primary problem. It is a message of hope in, in this life and in the life to come. But Jesus is talking about how he is going to address humanity's fundamental problem. See, there's something more fundamentally wrong with us than... Um, our social standing if we're poor. Like we have a more basic problem than that. And that is our heart is, is in need of a savior. We have offended a holy God. And so, yes, um, God's people are, are to bring to bear his justice standards to the nations. And, and we, we see this, and I've talked about that in other, in other live streams, but it is part of the Great Commission where, where Jesus says to go into all the earth and, and make disciples, teaching them to obey all that I have commanded you to do. And yes, we as Christians are to go into all the earth and, and bring the kingdom to bear. But our primary issue is that we are sinners. We need to, we need to come into a right relationship with God. The problem here with Christians who mix Christianity with social justice is that they read these words of poor and justice and and the oppressed and prisoners and, and these types of terms in scripture. And then they they kind of make this 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 big leap to progressive politics and as if it's almost like one straight line of a, a destination. And in in my, if I was to be very honest and, and candid as a theologian, this is the type of proof texting that we see people do who, who often engage in certain theological errors. This, this is the, it, it, it's when we talk to people 
who are from other religions, they will often quote scripture to us. And then we tell them, oh, you're taking that, what, out of context. But they'll string together a few verses and, and words to make it seem like there's scriptural warrant for their position. Sometimes you see this in, in extreme versions of word of faith teaching. They have scriptures. Social justice people have scriptures. And there's a grain of truth behind the idea that, that Jesus has come to bring his message. He's come to bring salvation to marginalized people. Yes, but it's, 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 it's not just a hope for the marginalized. It's a hope for everyone. It's an invitation to rich and poor because all of that ground is level at the foot of the cross. So we have to keep unfolding the story. We can't just look at these few verses. We've got to unfold the story as a whole. So we're going to look at the, the flow of the book of, of Luke and Acts as we go here. So after Jesus leaves the synagogue, a few verses later, starting in verse 43, it says this, it says, I must proclaim the good news of the kingdom of God to the other towns also, because this is why I was sent. And he kept on preaching in the synagogues of Judea. This word, good news, this is euangelion, this is the gospel. So Jesus is saying that that his good news has come, and it is part of this, this message that he's come to bring to the poor, but also to the rich. It's a life-changing message. It is a message for the nations. Now, from there, we see Jesus begin to heal the sick, cast out demons, raise the dead. And this is, in the context of Luke's gospel, what the good news is of the kingdom. The Messiah has come. That thing that they have, they have longed for for thousands of years, he has come and he is demonstrating his power over disease and demons and death. And, and these miracles provide evidence that he has the power to forgive sins and his teaching has authority. Now, we're going to skip ahead to a few uh, chapters later in, in the Gospel of Luke. We're going to go to Luke chapter 9. And we see now, by this point in his ministry, he's called the 12 together. But notice what it says. Now it's not just Jesus has power and authority. He gives the 12 power and authority to also drive out demons and cure diseases. And we see them in the book of Acts, raise the dead, just like Jesus did. And he sent them out to proclaim the kingdom of God and to heal the sick. He he basically deputizes them. This is how I like to think about this is he deputizes them. And if, if someone's going to become a deputy, if a sheriff is going to make a deputy, he gives them a badge and a gun. And, and, and the badge is like the authority part of it. You know, some people see that badge and, and, and they see those, those sirens go off and they pull off to the side of the road because they know that there's an authority that is signaling them to do something. But he also gives them power. He gives them the gun. Some people won't won't stop with just saying stop in the name of the law because there's an authority. They have to have the muscle, they have to have the power, and that's the gun. So if we're going, the 12 start acting in his name and he kind of deputizes them with power and authority. Now, what do they have power and authority over? It is over disease. It is over demons and ultimately over death, as we see that played out in the book of Acts. Now, when we get to the very next chapter, something even more interesting happens. 
So now it's not just Jesus, and it's not just the 12 that have power and authority. He deputizes 70 disciples to also go out and do the things that he has been doing. And so he sends them out in pairs, and he tells them, you know, the, the harvest is is plentiful, but the workers are few, and he's he's telling them to go out quickly. He's giving them kind of a, a quick uh, short-term mission to go out. And he says in verse 8, when you enter a town and you're welcomed, eat what is offered to you. Heal the sick who are there and tell them the kingdom of God has come near you. This is the good news at this point in the unfolding of the story. It's this idea of healing the sick, casting out demons, and raising the dead. So at this point in, in the, the unfolding of the euangelion, of the good news, of the gospel, it is, that, it is that the kingdom of God is the proclamation and the demonstration that the Messiah has come and, and that his disciples and those who follow him walk in the same power and authority over the devil, over disease, and over death that Jesus does. Jesus is like a supernatural interruption that is, is coming into the physical world. And so when his disciples align with him, they become aligned to this supernatural interruption to bring the kingdom near. And so that's what the good news is. It is the gospel of the kingdom that Jesus has come. The Messiah has finally come. Okay, so we, we saw, first of all, in the, in, the, the, in the first part of the teaching, the gospel is going out. And what the gospel is during the time of Jesus is that he's, he's proclaiming and demonstrating the kingdom of God. That is the good news, that the Messiah has come. Now, after the resurrection of Jesus, toward the end of the Gospels, we see that a new component of the Gospel emerges. And we see this most profoundly in Peter's sermon on Pentecost. So Peter stands up in Acts chapter 2, and he kind of re-rehearses some events from the Old Testament. Now, I'm going to scroll down here to verse 22. He says, fellow Israelites, listen to this. Jesus of Nazareth was a man accredited by God to you by miracles, signs, and wonders, which God did among you through him, as you yourselves know. This man was handed over to you by God's deliberate plan and foreknowledge, and you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him on the cross. But God raised him from the dead, freeing him from the agony of death because it was impossible for death to hold on to him. So what we see here is that an integral part of God's saving plan is Jesus rising from the dead. We also see, if we scroll down here, this, this whole prophecy from David, King David, about how death and decay uh, can't hold the Messiah. And then we see that the Messiah is, is ascended and Verse 31, seeing what's to come, he spoke of the resurrection of the Messiah, that he was not abandoned to the realm of the dead, nor did his body see decay. God has raised this Jesus to life, and we are witnesses of it, exalted at the right hand of God. So it's including now not only the death, the burial, the resurrection, and the ascension of Jesus, and that this is now part of 
what the gospel is. It is these events. And then Peter calls the people in verse 38. They say, what must we do to be saved? Peter says, repent, be baptized, every one of you, in the name of the Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. So this is the gospel. When, when Peter goes out and he preaches, and we see this pattern repeated over and over again in the book of Acts, we see that the proclamation to uh, the hearers of that, that when the apostles would preach to the crowds, there are these components of the life, the ministry, the death, the burial, the resurrection, and the ascension of Jesus. And that this, this message requires a response of repentance on the part of the hearers. And that as they, as they come forward, as, as, as an expression of their repentance, they get water baptized, they walk into a new life and receive the Holy Spirit. So this is, this is where we start to see this, this new theme emerge. Now, we still see in the book of Acts how, how the apostles are going about walking in power and authority and healing the sick, casting out demons, raising the dead. These were the, the demonstration that the kingdom of God has come near. And the proclamation starts to come more into focus about the, the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus so that when we finally arrive at 1 Corinthians 15, and Corinthians is one of the oldest epistles. It was written first, one of the first written. We find one of the oldest credo statements or, or summaries of what it means to be a Christian. This is likely something that early Christians would recite as a summary of their faith when they got together. It says, For what I received I passed on to you as of first importance. Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures. He was buried, he was raised on the third day, according to the scriptures, and he appeared to Cephas, who is Peter, and then to the twelve. After that, he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers and sisters at the same time, most of whom are still living, but some fell asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last, he appeared to me also as one abnormally born. So this gives us more of a full-orbed picture of the euangelion, the good news. So what is the gospel? What is the gospel? Well, we're going to go through 10 quick points to sort of summarize this. I've tried to show scripturally what it is, and now I'm just going to give you 10 quick points about what is the gospel. Well, first of all, it's the promises of God that were made in the Old Testament and have now been fulfilled with the coming of Jesus as the Messiah. Number two, Jesus was anointed by God at his baptism. That's another feature, key feature of the gospel, historically speaking. Jesus began his ministry in Galilee. After his baptism, Jesus went around performing mighty works by the power and authority of God, healing the sick, casting out demons, raising the dead. He was crucified according to the purpose of God. We just read about that in Acts chapter 2. Jesus was raised from the dead. He appeared to the disciples. We read about that. Jesus was exalted by God and given the name Lord. In other words, he was the ruler, reigner over everything. He gave the Holy Spirit to form the new community of God. Jesus will come again for judgment and the restoration of all things. And all who hear the message should repent and be baptized. 
This is the good news. This is what historic Christianity has said is the gospel. It's the euangelion. It is what we express in the Nicene Creed. It is these historical events. These 10 points basically form the good news that Peter and the apostles preached over and over again in the book of Acts. Just read their sermons. You'll see, you'll find these themes repeatedly. And this, friends, is the message that changed the world. It is that God has come and he has made a way for us to be saved. I think that there is a tendency in modern evangelicalism to want to add to the gospel, you know, that, well, this, this isn't very sexy. <laughs> you know, this is, this is just a bunch of historical events, but, but that is the good news. It is the good news that changed the world. Well, why is that? It's because if the resurrection has happened, it changes everything. Because in the resurrection, you and I, when we place our faith in Christ, in his death, on our behalf. We are also placing our faith in his resurrection, that we will rise again, and that this has power to change and transform our hearts and our lives. And I think that for many of us, we struggle because we live in an age of a lot of confusion where we're, we're, we're now saying, well, um, all of these justice issues and law issues and love for neighbor is the gospel. But that is a mixing of law and gospel. That has not historically been the gospel. What the gospel is, is these historical events that Jesus Christ has broken through. And he has brought with him um, kind of a preview of coming attractions of what we will see realized in the new creation. So now, so far in our effort here tonight, we're trying to answer the big question of, is racism a gospel issue? So far, we've defined the gospel based on the entire counsel of God from Scripture. We haven't simply proof text um, Luke chapter 4 and the reading of Isaiah 61, and then jumped from there into a discussion about politics and social justice. So we, we didn't do that. We tried to look at Scripture, the, the whole flow in very summary fashion of what the gospel is. Now, to close out this first part of the teaching series, I want to give some brief consideration to what we mean by the term gospel issue. Because again, defining our terms is very important. One of the major concerns I have with this term gospel issue is that embedded within the term itself is sort of this implied assertion that if you disagree with the issue, you're somehow undermining the gospel itself. And so I want to offer a word of caution that if you, if you sense that somebody is using the term gospel issue as a shorthand way of saying, these are the things you should be passionate about, just as passionate as me, that's a bit of a problem. It, it should not be used as a synonym for kingdom building. It should not be used for a synonym for transforming the culture because that doesn't fit the definition of the gospel per se. Um, the term gospel issue, I think, also in, implicitly asserts that t- 
topic X, whatever we're asserting as a gospel issue, is more important, is a more important topic than other topics that are not gospel issues. And I think that that is, again, a bit of a, a setup that makes it seem like other things are, I don't know, less important than things that are labeled as a gospel issue. And it, 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 it creates this kind of peculiar hierarchy at times. I mean, when you call something like the coronavirus a gospel issue, that, that becomes a bit confusing to me. Using this term gospel issue, I think can really set up a, a potential situation where reasonable discussion gets shut down pretty quickly simply because we're using this term gospel issue. Well, what if I disagree that the coronavirus is a gospel issue? What if I disagree that social justice is a gospel issue? I am potentially seen as some sort of biblically illiterate or overly analytical Christian. I, I, I hear this all the time on social media. I don't think that's necessarily the case. I, I think that when we use this term, we have to be kind of careful about how we use it because it is latent with certain assumptions. Now, one thing I've noticed is that when people discuss gospel issues among themselves in a group, they have a tendency to kind of all assume that everyone in the room has pretty much the same understanding of the gospel. For example, when people who are all passionate about social justice get together and they talk about social justice being a gospel issue, they're often speaking to people who already agree with them. Then, you know, when we see posts on social media that such and such is a gospel issue and they make proclamations about it, other Christians sometimes pop in and say, now, wait a minute, I, I, how are you defining the gospel? And, and I, I have some questions here, but that's sort of frowned upon, you know, because so, so much front loading is in the term gospel issue that if you take issue with gospel issue, it's like, well, you must not be for the gospel. And I think we have to have some clear definitions about what is happening there. So when we're talking about something being a gospel issue, in the strictest sense, it is something that relates to the, the historic events of Jesus's life and a reflection about him bringing an interruption to this physical world and giving us a preview of coming attractions of the world to come. So maybe next time you find yourself in a conversation with someone, maybe even your pastor, who says that such and such is a gospel issue— um, I want to encourage you to to have some courage and to to ask, well, what what do you mean by that? How are you defining the gospel? Can can you tell me what goes into your reasoning that such and such is in fact a, a gospel issue? I also want to make a point that these ten points that I've outlined tonight are again based on historic Christianity. They're really beautifully expressed in the Nicene Creed, which is the unifying creed of all Christians, all true Christians. But we're hearing today a lot of chatter about the white gospel or white theology, or that our theology must be decolonized, or that somehow there is a black gospel, and that it's different than the white gospel. Well, I hope that you can see in the 10 points that I outlined earlier, and as we went through scripture, 
This is nothing whatsoever to do with white gospel, black gospel, whatever those terms mean. I would ask the person to define their terms because when we are defining the gospel, we are talking about God's redemptive plan, his invitation to all people everywhere. It is an invitation to the rich and to the poor because we all have the same fundamental problem. The poor person's greatest problem is not their status as a poor person. All of our greatest problems is that we're sinners, okay? So when we think about this this terminology that I'm seeing even among popular evangelical Bible teachers, that there is such a thing as a white gospel or white theology or a black gospel or somehow that black people have a different gospel than we do, this, this is not a historically Christian idea. You can refer to a conversation that my podcast partner, Monique, and I had a few months ago with our our friend, Carillos. I posted that on the Center for Biblical Unity page a few days ago about our North African roots of Christianity. North Africa, Egypt in particular, had nothing to do with the slave trade, nothing to do with colonization. It is a church that practices the traditions and heritage that trace themselves back to the Apostle Mark in 60 A.D., it is, it is the same gospel that I am outlining here today in this video. You don't need to feel intimidated that you have somehow gotten onto some white colonization train by believing in this gospel. This is the same gospel that we have taught as Christians for 2,000 years. It is perfectly okay for you to reject this claim that there is somehow some other gospel that black people believe in and is different than a gospel that white people believe in. There is one gospel, and it is the same good news that Jesus taught to his disciples that he proclaimed and he demonstrated that they proclaimed and that they demonstrated and that the church has proclaimed and demonstrated for 2,000 years. I just, I just want to encourage you that you don't have to accept the assertion just because somebody is telling you on social media, even if your pastor tells you that there is something called a black gospel or that you've been colonized. If, if, if you believe that this is the gospel, these 10 points, you are well within historic Christianity and it is okay to say no. It is okay for you just to say, I'm not accepting this, this, framework of of critical race theory coming in and distorting scripture. You don't have to feel intimidated, you don't have to feel scared. You you can just say no. You could just you could just say no. Social justice people may be defining the gospel as both how we are saved and the gospel of the kingdom that changes the world. I think that that is true but a confusion of terms. And I'm going to get more into that next week. But if you check out my blog post called Justice Begins at Home, and really the vision of historical Christian justice is charity. It's personal acts of righteousness. It's tzedakah in in Hebrew. It is this idea that you and I as individuals engage in personal acts of righteousness. That is the primary way that scripture talks about justice. It's not the only way. I talked about the mishpat part of justice. I have a two-part teaching series 
about that called How to Answer God's Call to Justice. But what I didn't cover in that series is I covered yesterday in a blog post about the other word for justice, which is better translated righteousness, tzedakah. And that is personal acts of righteousness. Those are things you and I can do today as we treat and engage people with kindness and patience and forbearance and uh, help our neighbor and seeing the elderly. And it is not a systems-oriented thing. It is an acts of, of personal righteousness and engagement. And this is how the gospel of Jesus Christ comes along. He, he says, you know what? Everyone's a sinner. Everyone needs to believe in me as a savior and, and the burial, death, resurrection, and that I've ascended to the father and, and all of these things. That's the gospel. Okay. But then as we go out and we preach the gospel and people get converted and they, their hearts get transformed. Okay. Let's take the example of Nicodemus or not Nicodemus, um, Zacchaeus, another very famous social justice passage. Um, Zacchaeus encounters Jesus and he, he understands the good news that the Messiah has come. That's what's happening right there for him. Jesus obviously hasn't died yet. So that part of the story has unfolded, but he encounters Jesus. He believes in him as the Messiah. He, he, he goes with the revelation that he has. And then what is his heart posture? His heart posture is that his heart has changed and he wants to engage in tzedakah. He wants to engage in personal acts of righteousness. So he wants to pay back those that he has cheated. Now, social justice people will use this passage as a uh, biblical warrant for reparations. Well, going in, down the path of reparations is a whole government, potentially a government program and under a, some sort of tax. I mean, there's a lot of different ideas of how reparations would work. But that is so far afield from what we're talking about with Zacchaeus. Zacchaeus is a very simple story where a man met Jesus, believed in him as the Messiah, put all his faith and trust and confidence in what Jesus was doing and who he was. And he, he immediately recognized out of a heart of gratitude, I am going to pay back I, people I cheated. That's it. It was a personal free will decision. Jesus didn't tell him to do it. He didn't tell him he was, he was compelled to do it. It was just the natural outworking of encountering the true and living God. That is righteousness. That is the primary means of justice. And Jesus calls it being salt, being light, the, the yeast leavening the dough. It's a, it's, it's a process of slow change over time. As people come to faith in Christ, their hearts and lives are changed and transformed by the power of the Holy Spirit, and because their hearts are changed and transformed, they want to express their gratitude to God by loving others more deeply. But it's not a, 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 enacting necessarily in Sadaka. It's not necessarily enacting a government program or compelling people to do things or redistributing wealth or any of those concepts. That, that's not what Sadaka is. It's, it's more like when Jesus talks about being the light of the world. If you have a lot of little candles, you start lighting the world. When you go out and, and, and as the gospel goes out, the world changes. People's values 
change. It's a, it's a civil evolution of culture. That is the primary way that this happens. Our current justice conversation on so many levels is more focused on the macro systems and systemic injustice, which I think that there's a lot of questions about the nature of systemic injustice, the definitions of systemic injustice, the extent of systemic injustice. It is a complicated issue and it can leave you feeling very helpless and hopeless, but that's not primarily what Christ has in view. What Christ has in view is very simple. You can do it today. Be kind. Be kind to people. See the poor. What could you do? If you, if you notice your neighbor struggling, if you notice somebody at church and you find out that, that they need help, that they need a meal train, that, that the elderly need rides to church, like what is it in your sphere of influence that you could affect change today? That is God's primary justice program. Uh, so go check out my blog post from yesterday called Justice Begins at Home. It's on my website at theologymom.com. Melissa is asking me, why do you think there's so much pushback against the co- this concept of justice that you are talking about? This is just my opinion. I might think differently about this tomorrow. It's a good question. I'm going to say conservative Protestants have not done a good job discussing justice issues. And I think that we just haven't. I, I go to the meetings nearly every year for the Evangelical Theological Society. It's where all the eggheads who have PhDs come and give papers to each other. In recent years, there's been more justice conversations, but by and large, it's a fairly new issue. Conservative Protestant theologians have not done a lot in this area, okay? The progressives and the liberals have been in this area for 75 years. As the emerging generation is migrating away from a Christian worldview, they are asking justice-oriented questions because that, those are the questions that they are getting programmed by our culture to ask. I think that conservative Protestant churches are now scrambling and they're realizing kind of the intellectual vacuum that's been created because we haven't really engaged in a lot of rigorous conversations about this issue. And uh, until fairly recently. And I think that a second thing that's in play here is that those people who did recognize there weren't a lot of justice and race conversations happening from a biblical standpoint went out in the culture. They went to graduate school. They got PhDs and they were learning critical race theory, which has been around for 30, 40 years. And then they brought it back into the church. Well, at least here was a framework that was addressing justice issues. And there's enough terminology in critical race theory that bears a resemblance to historic Christianity because they use words like um, um, oppression, uh, justice, injustice. Um, They want to talk about equality. Now they're wanting to switch equality with equity, which is kind of, a different idea, uh, but many people think that those words are interchangeable. And so you you have these these words that we find in Scripture, and these words are present in critical race theory, present there, and and it's like, whoa, this must mean this, and then they kind of get conflated. And I think that people who are 
who are care about social justice issues, I want to give them the benefit of the doubt that they absolutely genuinely care about people. I just think that they don't realize, maybe, I, I, I don't want to believe this, but maybe they haven't just looked closely at scripture on these matters. And so they just have kind of gotten swept up in the cultural moment of social justice because it's a framework. It offers a, an organizing way to think about these things. It has just enough resemblance to scripture. And then they can kind of string together 10 or 15 key passages that they recycle over and over again. And then it, before you know it, you're just kind of down the path quite a ways. Uh, next week in part two of this teaching, I'm going to address the second half of our question and get into uh, this case study of whether racism is itself a gospel issue as we have defined it here. My answer may surprise you. Okay, I do want to thank you for watching and tuning in tonight. Thank you so much for all of your encouraging notes. Please share this broadcast if you feel like it'll help someone. And I love hearing how the this teachings are blessing you and helping you grow in your faith. Those are just the best messages that this really is helping somebody when I'm staring into the camera in my living room. So I do thank you for watching, and I do bless you tonight. Thank you so much. Good night. Be sure to follow Theology Mom on Facebook and like, comment, and subscribe on YouTube. Don't forget to catch Krista next week for more theology fun on Theology Mom and all the things. Thanks for listening.